Well, I bet you did. We need to get a mulligan in a worship service. Each night, my wife, Shannon, and I read to our nine-month-year-old son, Seth, and it's usually uh, more of a wrestling match than it is reading, because he'd rather eat the book than read the book. Uh, but we read the classic ones like Sesame Street and Disney ones, but uh, we also read one that's called Baby's Bible, and in this it has like the highlight real stories of the Bible, where you have Noah's Ark, you have Moses, you have the birth of Jesus, you have Jesus speaking to 5,000. Um, but one night, as we, we blazed cover to cover in his Bible, one sitting, and it's pretty good, we got to this point where it says, this is the last page, it says, Jesus is alive. I think you can advance this slide, but it should be up there. There we go. It says, Jesus is alive, he's risen. This is a happy day. And this is the last page of the baby's Bible. It, it kind of ends with that happy ending, a happily ever after, if you will. And not that I expect a baby's Bible to like cover Revelation because it would be a little scary and good luck to the person who can write that. But it's kind of, it got me thinking that sometimes we can do that. We can get to this point in our Bibles where, where Christ has risen, Christ has been resurrected. We celebrate that truth, but we kind of stop there and we stay there and just say, and the disciples lived happily ever after, where it's not so. And what I want to do is kind of explore the fact that Jesus' resurrection wasn't a happily ever after ending sort of story, but it was the ending of a chapter with a new one about to begin. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is like Luke writing here. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions from the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And so what we have is Jesus raises from the dead. He's risen, and he starts appearing to the disciples over a period of 40 days. And what Luke says is he, he's proving to them in many different ways that he actually is alive. Uh, through eating with them, through, through appearing to them at different times, through saying, touch my hands. But what does Luke also say that he's talking to them about? The kingdom of God. 
In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. And here Jesus is saying, basically, what I was sent to do is preach the kingdom of God. That's one of my main tasks. And for three years, Jesus' disciples would have heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God. It was often the main point of his messages. And just before Jesus is about to go back to heaven, Jesus is casting the vision again for the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells his disciples that the kingdom is to be the top priority in their lives. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says this, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And for us today, as Jesus' disciples, this text applies to us today. And basically what it's saying is, if you're a disciple of mine, you've got to think about the kingdom first. When there's any decision that comes up that involves the kingdom or the glory of God, put the kingdom first, and God's going to take care of the rest. And for Jesus' disciples, uh, this, this talk of a new kingdom, it was great. Because they'd grown up knowing the stories of, of the glory days of Jerusalem. When, when that was the capital city for the Jewish kingdom. When King David and King Solomon were on top. And, and they longed for those days. And they're kind of living as subjects to a kingdom right now. In the Roman Empire. And, and what they're, they're wanting is to have those days restored. Like they were with King David and with King Solomon. And Jesus is saying there's going to be a new kingdom. There's going to be a new order. There's going to be a new authority. And they're all for it. They want to be part of it. And they're, they're excited about it because Jesus is close with them. They're close with Jesus. This means they're going to get positions of power, positions of authority, and an influence. Now, we might have trouble kind of understanding what the disciples were feeling at this point. So imagine that tomorrow a new politician shows up in Halifax and he tells you, I'm going to run for Prime Minister of Canada. And he says, I want you to help me run my campaign. And he starts telling you all his dreams and his visions for what Canada could be. And he says, I I'm going to reduce or eliminate taxes. Debt's going to be eliminated. Jobs are going to be created. The retirement age, instead of going up, is going to actually go down. He's saying, I'm going to reduce crime. I'm going to make free post-secondary education. He's saying, I'm going to fund research to cure common diseases. And he makes tons upon tons of great uh, promises. And your first reaction is, no, that's not going to happen, because I know how politicians work. But you take along with them just to kind of see what happens. How, how does this work out? And imagine to your surprise, as, as this new politician starts making these promises, people start buying into this. And he starts delivering on some of these promises. And you start believing that this, this new government, that Canada could be the way that he's talking about. And this is what Jesus' disciples were experiencing. We call it hope. Hope for something that would be greater than what they'd grown up with and what they were currently living in. But when they heard kingdom of God, we kind of we saw it in Acts 1 where they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom, basically, to what it was? But they, they picture something earthly, something tangible, something political, and something with armies. Whereas today, when we hear kingdom of God, our immediate thought usually is heaven. 
It's, it's something in the future. It's something down the road. It's, it's something entirely spiritual. But neither of those is what Jesus had in mind. When Jesus talks about the kingdom in Scripture, you find that Jesus is talking about lives that are changed through the forgiveness of sin and through doing things God's way. He's talking about overcoming the forces of evil, bringing the world's sin and its consequences, including death and everything that diminishes life. Jesus talks about the creation of a new order of righteousness and peace like this world has never seen. In his teachings, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's really small. It's going to start small, but it's going to grow. It's going to expand. It's going to be big, huge. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a fine pearl that you find or, or a treasure hidden in a field where it's worth taking everything you own and cherish and giving it up for selling so that you can attain that pearl or that treasure because everything in comparison is just trash. And right now we get to see glimpses of what the kingdom is like when we see lives that are changed by the grace of God and the Spirit working on people, when we see the gospel going forth in, in countries and areas where there's persecution, where there's resistance to Christ. But there's not, we're not going to see the kingdom fully realized until Christ returns. And as Jesus is casting this vision for the kingdom, and, and people are, his disciples are buying in, he's telling them, you're, you're going to be part of building it. And they don't understand it. They don't see the big picture, but they're excited. They, they want to be part of it. They're wrapped up because they thought their dreams for the kingdom of God were gone when their king died on the cross. That was all over. But now their king has risen from the dead, and not even death can stop him. So their kingdom is going to become a reality. But then Jesus says to them, um, I'm going now. Uh, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you've heard me talk about. And in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 18, Jesus talks about this. Jesus says this, If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Though I will not abandon you as orphans, I will come to you. Picking up in verse 25. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything. I have told you. And again, Jesus is saying, wait for this gift, for the spirit that I've talked about before. And actually, in, in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says this, In fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, it's actually more advantageous for me in this earthly body to go, and for the spirit to come, who can live with you and within you. You're going to be much more effective that way. And when I came out of Bible college, I could have read a text like Acts chapter 4 and probably missed the importance of the Holy Spirit in it. I probably would have focused on uh, missions or, or the ascension of Jesus. And I'm not slamming my Bible college. I'm not saying negative things about world missions or, or the ascension of Jesus. 
But what I realized after reading the book called Forgotten God by Francis Chan, which I highly recommend, is that we have this neglect for the spirit in our lives as individuals and as the church, capital C Church, today. That when we're reading through scripture, what we tend to see is God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. And we miss the influence or the role of the Spirit in our lives today and what He does in Scripture. And I realize that talking about the Holy Spirit might be kind of foreign to some people. We might not know much about Him, and that's okay. But in an extremely small nutshell, He's the most mysterious person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. He's also called the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Advocate, the Counselor. The Spirit presides as the ruling entity in the body, in the mind, and the heart of the Christian. We're going to learn more about the Spirit throughout this series. But, but with this command that Jesus is giving the apostles to wait, they have two choices. They obey Jesus, and they wait for the Spirit to come. Or they disobey Jesus, disregard his command to wait, and just go ahead and start doing things their way. Now, remind, remember that Jesus has just raised from the dead. He's conquered death, so I probably listened to him. But Jesus is saying to them, guys, wait for the Holy Spirit that I told you about. He's going to show you what God wants. He's going to enable you to do it. Don't do anything. Don't try anything before he comes, because if you do, you're probably just going to mess it up. I've seen how you guys roll. <laughs> but just in case um, Jesus' disciples miss these instructions, Jesus makes it clear again in Acts chapter 1-8 what he wants them to do. Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's number one. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jesus has given his disciples kind of, this is the outline of how things are going to happen. Spirit comes first, then you'll be my witnesses. Now, I want to take a minute and look at why Jesus said to his disciples, don't do anything before the Spirit comes. So we're going to look at some examples in Scripture. Matthew chapter 26 this is when Jesus is getting arrested. So Judas has just betrayed Jesus. And Jesus says, My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. So this is Peter who, who whips out the sword and like slashes off the guy's ear. Jesus makes him better. Um, but this is Peter's reaction, is to slash, stab, act, talk first, and then ask permission or do the right thing or realize that he's made a mistake after. That's before the Spirit. I want to look at an example of after the Spirit for Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Um, so what's just happened, uh, just giving you some background context for this, is that Peter and John, they're preaching and then they get arrested. And Jewish High Council is like, what do we do with these guys? And one guy kind of says, well, you can't really do too much because they've said we've got to obey God rather than men. And so this man says, just give them a warning and send them on the way. If it's, if it's a man-made thing, it's going to fail. It's going to fall apart like other things. If this is from God, you can't fight against God and win. So this is what happens. The others accepted advice, and the High Council called them the apostles and had them flogged. 
Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. So what you have is Peter and John leave uh, their beating, high-fiving that they could get beat up for Christ. This, this isn't how Peter operates, but this is what the Spirit does in his life. It makes the difference. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. So somebody's doing something good, but John's like, stop it, you're, you're not with us, so stop using Jesus' name. And Jesus kind of like, John, messed that one up, because if he's not against us, he's for us. Another example before the Spirit, um, in John, or Luke chapter 10, verse 35, or sorry, Mark 10, the final, here we go. Verse 35 and following. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to see the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on the left. So James and John are asking to be exalted above all the other disciples. And Jesus is probably like frustrated here because just the previous chapter, he's told them the first will be last and the last will be first. And James and John here are going, hey, we want to be first. So Jesus is probably a little frustrated with them. This is before the Spirit. And here's my, here's my favorite one before the Spirit. This is James and John, again, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to the Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. So James and John, it's like, they're not good hosts. These people are unwelcoming, so let's torture them. That's before the Spirit. That's what they want to do before the Spirit. But after the Spirit, James is the first witness. He's the first martyr die for Christ, as a witness of his faith in Christ. John, the former arsonist, he writes letters in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. But in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John's calling people dear children, dear friends. He turns into a big softy after the Spirit comes, because he, knows, he becomes known for his gentleness and for his love. And these are only a few examples in Scripture where the Spirit makes a difference in the lives of these men. The apostles couldn't do this on their own power, and they needed protection, protection from themselves, but protections from others who wanted to harm them. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. We see that the Spirit shows itself through its power. The kingdom is demonstrated through power. And throughout the book of Acts and in the Apostle Paul's writings, we see that's the spirit that empowers, that leads them to do the miraculous. And Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit, because it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring about the true kingdom of God. God wants the kingdom His way, not our way. 
before the, the Spirit came on the disciples in Acts chapter 2, Peter probably would have tried to rush the kingdom into existence. He would have made impulsive decisions and even forced it with the sword. James and John probably would have tried to bully the kingdom into existence. They, they would have looked for honor, for power, and they missed Christ's message of grace, love, humility. There would be constant mistakes in this kingdom if they started before the Spirit came. It's not just them who would do it wrong, but we have to ask ourselves, what would the kingdom of God look like if I tried to do it in my own wisdom and in my own power? My kingdom would be weak, divided, off-target, struggling, wrong. And it seems obvious, but some of us need to realize it and, and remind ourselves constantly, and this is for myself as well, that I'm not smart enough and I'm not powerful enough to give God the kingdom of God that He deserves or that He desires. And if for some reason you're insulted by that, you're just going to have to live with it because it's the truth. We only have to look at history to see the problems that the human body king, kingdom faces, that they all eventually fail, that they all eventually fall apart. Um, I'm not a board game guy. My wife's always like, James, do you want to play a board game? And I'm like, no. Um, I believe they're called board games because they're bored. And it's called B-O-R-E-D. Um, but one of my favorite board games when I uh, rarely play is the board game of Risk. And the reason I like it is because you have armies, and it's about dominating the world and, and destroying other people. Um, my wife would call it a very boring game. But if you're not familiar with it, the idea of this game is to build up your empire, build up your army, uh, destroy other armies, and take over the world. It's world domination, basically. And I played this game a lot. Um, I played it with a bunch of different people with different skill levels. And sometimes you're watching people and the strategies they use, and, and you're like, why don't you pull out your hair or yell at them because they're, they're making mistakes that are jeopardizing their kingdom. But not only their kingdom, but your kingdom. And, and what is funny is that, as sad as it is, it's very true that we can't even play board games like Risk or Monopoly without sabotaging our own empires or destroying our own monopolies because we don't have the wisdom or the abilities to manage and grow these kingdoms. The question is, why would we try to build the kingdom of God in our own wisdom and in our own power, when there's so much more at stake than braveness. The Holy Spirit is the only way that the kingdom can be realized as God intends it. So after Jesus gives these instructions, he's taken up to heaven. And it says a cloud hides Jesus from the disciples, and they're just kind of staring, waiting for something to happen. But two angels appear and say, guys, he's gone. He will be coming back. But you guys have a lot of work to do in the meantime. So following the Jesus' instructions, the disciples go back to Jerusalem, and they wait. And we see that Jesus' resurrection is not the happy ending of the Bible. It's not a happy ever after. It's actually the end of a chapter of the new chapter will begin. The start of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this is just after where we left God. It says, this, the disciples all met together and they were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. 
And so what they're doing as they wait is they're praying. They're praying probably that the Spirit would come, just as Jesus promised, which we're going to see happen next week. And Matthew's Gospel ends with the Great Commission. Many of us are familiar with this. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And basically what Jesus is telling his disciples here is start, grow the kingdom of God. What we see is that the kingdom of God, it's not measured by, by land possessed or kilometers around its border, but the number of lives that have been transformed by the grace of God receiving Jesus as Savior and living in a way that shows that He is Lord of their life. And this is where we get our mission statement here at the church, which is making more and better disciples. What we're trying to do here is grow the kingdom of God one person at a time by transforming lives through God's grace and through the work of His Spirit on their life. But what I want us to see is that the mission of the church and here at HCC, it, it hinges on what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. That we, we can't take Matthew 28 and think that we're going to accomplish Jesus' mission in our own wisdom, in our own power. It's not a human Thing. It's not possible in human wisdom or human strength. Because if we think that, we're doomed for failure from the start. The Holy Spirit is the sole driving force for the kingdom. And that's why God gives it as a gift to every Christian. Dwight L. Moody was a famous 19th century preacher, evangelist, and publisher. And while his fame was growing, um, he was invited to go to England to speak. Uh, to hold a series of evangelistic meetings. And an elderly English pastor heard about this happening, and he asked argumentatively, why do we need this mystical movie? He's uneducated, he's inexperienced, and on and on and on he went against Mr. Moody. He continues, who does he think he is anyway? Does he think that he has a monopoly in the Holy Spirit? A younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, no. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit can have a monopoly on us as a church and as individuals so that we don't get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the, in the, in the Bible and say, great, Jesus is alive. And we kind of stop there thinking that's the happily ever after until Jesus returns. My prayer is that the Spirit has a monopoly on us so that when we, we see this, we can participate in the next chapter of God's kingdom that the true and the eternal happily ever after will be greater because through God's power and through God's wisdom we'll have done everything that we could for the kingdom of God to be present in the hearts and the lives of people here on this earth. The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. The person who is willing to be used by God's Spirit, the impossible can be accomplished through their life for the glory of the kingdom. Because it's not about our strength, but God's power. It's not based on our efforts, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is not about my abilities, but the grace of God and the work of His Spirit in our lives. Let's pray.
Father God, we just thank you for your spirit. Father, we thank you that when you gave us the mission to, to grow your kingdom, to grow your church, Father, that you also gave us a gift of honor that, a gift that we could actually make it happen, that it could grow, that it could be the greatest treasure that people would ever find. And Father, we're just praying that as, as a church and as individuals, that your spirit is present in our lives. Father, that we're, we're paying attention for where it's, it's counseling us, for where it's drawing us, for what's empowering us to do. And God, we just pray that just as Jesus told us, that we can put the kingdom first, that it can be number one in our lives. Father, we just thank you for your son who built this kingdom for us. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.